My name is Dr. Michaela Keegan Yadley, and I've spent the last 17 years of my career in schools as a teacher and principal. I started the Dissect Ed podcast to help you by using my strengths of connecting and relating to bring amazing guests to you each week. We will cover a wide range of topics related to all aspects of and roles in education. My goal? For you to enjoy and feel successful in your role so we keep amazing teachers and leaders in schools. Thank you for all you do. Take care and enjoy. This podcast episode is brought to you by the 3D Printing Man. Get everything from custom food bowls for your pets to chore lists for your family in more than 15 vibrant colors, all custom designed. Visit his store on Etsy by searching The 3D Printing Man, all one word. Again, that's The 3D Printing Man on Etsy and get 10% off with the code DISSECTED. Happy Tuesday, everyone. I am so excited to bring today's guest to you. Melanie Curtis is a certified life coach, speaker, author, and professional skydiver. Yes, you heard that right, a professional skydiver. When I heard Mel's story and had the chance to talk with her, I just knew you needed access to her perspective on everything, from leading with love and hilarity, to facing our fears, to the importance of emotional safety. Mel takes you through a journey of different ways and mindsets to help us manage our way through a challenging year ahead, or just normal everyday challenges. Over the course of this episode, we break down so many of the issues we face each day in our own schools, from dealing with our own fears around our role and how to talk to ourselves through those fears, the benefit of taking risks, the critical importance of feeling secure with our supervisors, and how to get excited about goal setting, even though we may have little to no control over the targets we set. She also has a new Audible book, How to Fly, Life Lessons from a Professional Skydiver. This book is a massive resource to all the bigger concepts she shares about. I can't wait for you to get to know Mel. So let's get to it. When I was looking at your website and going through some of your materials, the first thing that I, the first question I saw, the first I would say, I guess, text was, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And I said, wow, that is one of the most powerful questions I've probably ever seen. And yeah. it's not that I've never heard somebody really ask that before, but thinking about what you do for a profession and then seeing that and then thinking about the audience that I'm reaching, I have a, I'm wondering why is this the first question you ask? What power does that question hold for us? And what does it assume about our motivators? Yeah, that's that question about that question is a great question. <laughs> um, and just to be clear, it's not necessarily the first question I would ask a person. I think what it points to and why it's something I have on my website and things that I would invite people into is, is that, is that it invites people really into self-inquiry. So Jumping out of an airplane is such a powerful metaphor of like, yeah, of course, there's a ton of people in the world that are like, oh my God, I could never jump out of a perfectly good airplane. We have all these limiting thoughts <laughs> about what we can't do, about what's not possible, about who wouldn't let us or why we can't do it or what it would feel like or how we would fail. There's just so many things layered in front of our psyche, in front of our emotional and mental view that blocks us from taking action in areas that we want. Now, even discerning what and where we want to take action can be a real internal inquiry in itself. And so the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? If people really sit with that question, they can find areas in their life where there's electricity where they feel fear. If they think about doing something, they'll feel their body will respond even to the mere thought. And those are areas, not necessarily that we want to do everything that we're afraid of. I think there's a lot of power in that. That's sort of a separate conversation about this idea of, of moving through fear and 
getting past it and what we learned from that experience, but it's at least a starting point for us to look more deeply into why we feel blocked in that area, right? Because fear keeps us safe too. So it's not necessarily that it's like, oh, any time we feel fear, we always want to do that. It's more that we want to look more closely at it to discern whether or not that direction actually is for us and will liberate us in our lives and our careers, or whether it's actually something that's telling us more about the situation such that if we prepare more, we could move through it in a different, more uh, considered way. Does that make sense? It does. And I wrote down a few notes just from what you were saying. This concept of a limiting belief is something that is new to me, probably because I've entered into the entrepreneurial space. And so I have found that that word, that, that phrase, that expression has come up a ton. And I understand because there are a lot of limiting beliefs that may stop us from really just being out there and saying, okay, how am I going to make this work? What surprised me is I see so many connections between limiting beliefs in the entrepreneurial world and what I should say people, not just in the education space, but really people in the education space, including myself when I was a, when I was a, um, a school leader, I had a million limiting beliefs. I never thought of it that way. Nobody ever posed it to me that way. And I think that's something that could really be helpful and beneficial when we talk to educators who, I mean, who are stressed out or overwhelmed or wondering how they're going to make it through yeah. the next week, never mind the next day or the whole school year. What are your limiting beliefs? Because I think all of the, a lot of the overwhelm comes from a lack of efficacy around the job. Mm. So I can't, I can't do everything they're asking me to do, or I can't do it well enough. Or, I mean, the limiting beliefs are endless yeah. because there's a lot of comparison to a standard or to another teacher or to so many things. Um, and the profession itself is very scrutinized um, and talked about a lot under a microscope often. Yep. So I think the aha moment for me in talking to you just now with that limiting belief is that I think that a lot of people in education are almost consumed by limiting beliefs. And so that's something I think I'll take away from this podcast and dive deeper into with, with people is, or with folks is, Instead of, so if, why are you stressed out? Why are you overwhelmed? It's always going to boil down almost always to, I can't do all of it. I can't get all this done. I can't do this well enough. I didn't teach this lesson well enough. I'm being observed today by my evaluator. Why does that make you overwhelmed? Because I can't do X, Y, and Z. Well, why not? And what if, what's limiting you? What, is there a belief about yourself that you feel like you're not able to perform? You're not able to reach the student What's your limiting belief about the student? What might their limiting belief be? Um, and I just think that concept is so relevant and something that I had just encountered in the last, say, six months. So, yeah. Um, well, I love that. And and it's, I think, it's very important for people to be validated around that experience because having limiting beliefs comes from the deepest parts of our psyche. It comes from our yes. upbringings, from, you know, ancestral patterns in our families and the society. And it comes from very deep places. So it's not necessarily, oh, you're just screwing up if you have living, limiting beliefs. But if you talk to a life coach once or twice, you'll, you'll suddenly be feeling better about your work. <laughs> No, it's it's really genuinely for most challenging work and there are absolutely ways to engage and bring consciousness to our limiting beliefs such that we can decide which ones we can manage on that day and and we can learn skills like genuine emotional detachment because this is the thing like of course people most of the time their limiting beliefs are blocking them from emotional pain right it's so i can easily sit here i'm not in the education space in the way that you're you are and your listeners are and i can also sit here and go it is so understandable to be in a lane where you are incredibly scrutinized where you where you feel and you it seems like you have impossible standards to meet so you're consistently set feeling like you're set up to fail right for a person who's really emotionally charged around 
feeling like a failure, which most people have that, right? We have to sort of reckon, like reconcile that idea of I'm not a failure because I'm not meeting unrealistic standards. And then it begs the question of what mindsets do I need and what interpersonal skills and what emotional skills can I cultivate such that that experience, which I theoretically have no control over changing, those standards don't seem like they're going to be changing anytime soon for people in the education space. And yet you're, so how do we make that less emotionally painful for the people that have to engage those things? So those are the questions I would start to ask and, and invite people and give people the hope that there are things that we can learn. We can engage theoretically, quote unquote, impossible situations with with our own mindsets toward what that is and feel less emotional pain inside of it while focusing on the things that we can control to feel empowered to be change agents inside of it. Wow. That's, that's so powerful. So powerful and a power, really powerful way of thinking about it because it gives you agency. Yeah, exactly. Because in a place where you really feel like you have none. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Moving on to something else that caught my attention when I was looking at your website and just in talking to you uh, in the past, you say that love and hilarity are the two most important things in life in that order. <laughs> oh, can, you t- I, can you tell us more about that? How do love and hilarity serve us? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Listen, I am the first person who's going to be really intense about things that I'm into you know, things that I care about. I bring an intensity to my life. I like that. It's a part of my personality I embrace. Certainly it's led me to my own personal and professional breakdowns as well when you have kind of lack of balance. So I've had to learn that as a person over time and as a professional over time. But um, from the perspective of love and hilarity, it just goes to the deepest parts of ourselves where I, where I really believe love and connection and, and that just energy of love and and kindness is paramount. And at the same time, life is ridiculous. Human beings are totally ridiculous. Like we are, we are walking comedy. And I think when we can bring a lightness to what we do and the challenges that we face, it helps take steam out of the pot. I've seen this countless times with working with my life coaching clients where it's not that we are avoid using humor to avoid tough conversations or using humor to avoid realities. It's that we are using humor to simply enjoy a rigorous process and to take steam out of that pot to make a make it sustainable, right? Like if something is so hard that and we never have a moment of release around the intensity of something, it's very rare that people can sustain that over a long period of time. And I've seen this so with life coaching clients, and I've also seen it in my competitive skydiving, both me as a competitor at a high level and me as a coach helping other teams compete at higher and higher levels. The goals are a given, right? Like, so I imagine the caring about the kids, caring about the teaching, and please correct me if I'm wrong, those are a given, right? Those are a total yes. given. So when we can bring in a little levity and laugh about certain things and and just allow ourselves to, you know, like shake out the stress in our bodies and and kind of make fun of maybe ourselves or a situation, but not not in a in a malicious way, but in a way to just lighten our perspective that can really, really help people be sustaining over like sustain their commitment over time. Yeah. And that, the way you explain that just confirms for me where this is such a great match for anybody in the education space. And I'm thinking, school leaders and even district leaders who are building teams and helping teams function because you need your team to function at a high level because the administrative team or leadership team, which can include teachers as part of the leadership team, sets the tone for and sets it for the adult and, and student culture to flourish. And I think that 
the good, the excellent teachers that we all know, if we think back to when we were in school, or if I think about the teachers that I have worked with or that I've supervised, they all have love. They would say love and kindness is the most important. And they find a way to make sure their students feel loved no matter what. It, it might look different uh, depending on the person because not everybody's the same, mm-hmm. but they their kids feel loved and they know they're loved. And that's probably the most important piece for keeping students engaged, especially kids who are at risk. There are several like just known risk factors or early warning indicators. But when students feel loved, then they feel like they should be or they need to be in school, in that class. It's amazing how students will skip certain classes, but always make sure they're at this one other class. And when I'll, I'll ask students, who, and there's a lot of humor in it as well, <laughs> but what is up with you? <laughs> like right. You are always in, this is the hardest class in the school, but you're always there. And a lot of times it has, it really does boil down to, I feel wanted in that class. I know so-and-so loves me. We have a good relationship. I may have an F right now, but I know I can improve that. And also I'm not judged because of that. And I think that all falls under the love and kindness. The other part about, um, you know, just, just like you said, human beings are ridiculously funny. It's ridiculous. Um, and that's another piece though, that when teachers can figure out a way to bring humor into the classroom and they all do it in different ways. That's another way. It's a, it's a, it's an icebreaker. Um, it can clear the pressure in the yep. room, cut the tension. Mm-hmm. Those are really important aspects. And one thing that it brings up for me, because I've worked in several different um, environments as a school leader and performance is actually that it's one of the most crushing metrics, the, the performance metrics, as far as the standards, especially over the last year and a half where school hasn't looked anything like school needs to look to even come close to helping kids achieve those metrics. So then you talk about feeling like a failure. We feel like we're failing our kids left and right. And then it makes us feel like we're not, you know, we're failing. Um, But I think the times that we can uh, laugh and, and smile and make sure that we have space to do that, I know those have been my favorite times with my teams. My favorite times have been when we can just, somebody makes a joke and I look at them and I'm like, I can't believe you just said that, but thank you. Because <laughs> I really needed to laugh right now. Yeah. Like I, needed that. I needed that laughter. Well, and I, and I talk about this stuff from the perspective of skills mm-hmm. all the time. And it's not like it's fake or it's, uh, you know, a manipulation of any kind. It's more like what are interactive personal skills that I can cultivate. You know, I know I mentioned that earlier, but it's a really big deal. The idea of love, right? That can, that can, that word is actually quite loaded. It can take on so many different meanings for people. But what we're talking about as it relates to say, what people are dealing with in a classroom or an entrepreneur dealing with clients. It's not this, it's certainly not obviously not the same as a romantic love connotation of that word, or even if it's can be more in the lane of familial love, but Mm -hmm. where it's pointing to is emotional safety. So you mentioned that the, the students don't feel judged. That's a huge part of what love theoretically can feel like to someone is that, Oh, I feel safe. Like what is, what makes up intimacy, which again can be a very loaded word. Intimacy theoretically brings us into this idea of connection where we feel emotionally safe and we don't feel judged. We feel accepted for exactly who we are. And from this place of, I am totally loved and accepted as I, exactly as I am today, doesn't mean we're not empowering people to continue to work hard to change, to continue to work hard to learn and grow because boundaries, love being the most important thing in life, theoretically is what I, how I say it, doesn't mean we condone all actions, doesn't mean we don't have personal and professional boundaries. Those are, in my view, also extreme acts of love, meaning not allowing a, a person to do a certain thing in our, our space or talk to us in a certain way, those things matter. And they teach people through our example, through relating to us, what, how we need, they need to elevate their behavior to 
you know, basically grow. And that's a really, truly loving act in my view as well. I can't tell you how many times over the last four years, I, so if a student has to come see me, something big has happened, whether they're in crisis and it needs to come to my level so I can help the team determine how we're going to uh, protect this child who's in crisis Mm -hmm. or they've violated a community standard or a law or rule in a very massive way. So if they're brought to me by somebody, that's typically why I seek kids out all the time. But if somebody is brought to me, that's typically why. So the first thing I always say to somebody who's now with me because, uh, is yeah, I'm not, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not the judge. Um, I, I care about you. And your physical and emotional safety are the most important thing to me. It doesn't mean we're not going to have hard conversations. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to expect that you're honest and truthful with me. And it doesn't mean that there isn't going to be a consequence down the road. But it does mean that no matter what you say to me, I'm not going to think any less of you. And I'm not going to be here judging you. And I can't tell you how disarming that was for the student. And usually, I'd say 9.5 times out of 10, not only did we get to the bottom of what was happening, but then our relationship would flourish throughout the rest of the time that we were in the same space, whether that student was a freshman and we had three more years together, or if they were about to graduate and then they moved on into the real world and I'd hear back from them. Yeah. And I don't really know where, I think I might've learned that from my mom who taught me never to judge, but I don't know when I started applying it in my role, but I saw the impact that it had Mm -hmm. on the students who had definitely messed up in a big way and they knew it and I knew it. Um, and to say, you're not judged. There's no judgment. So no judgment zone was powerful. Yeah, so I absolutely. think that's something that we can do for, it's not just doing it for, for them. It's really doing it for us because it allowed me to have a relationship with that student as well. And, you know, be able to show that student love and in return in their own way, they usually would do the same, the same back. Um, Beautiful. The other thing I think, because this, this podcast is really, the audience is very, is vast. So we have people who are students in education preparation programs. Mm-hmm. We have first year teachers. We have people who are about to retire as teachers. And then we have school level leaders. And then we have district level leaders. And I think one thing before we move on to the next, um, the next kind of question I have for you is I really want to stamp the, the point of that emotional safety that you spoke of. Cause again, that's something I also learned really late in my career when I was in survival mode as a principal was this concept of emotional and psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And I was in a position. So being a principal is a unique, it's a unique place to be because you're responsible for an entire staff and then all of the kids in that space, there's nobody who's more responsible for them than you are, but you also have people who are, who are responsible for you, right? So I had supervisors, superintendent, and if you're in a bigger, bigger space, you have levels of that. Yeah. And so when I learned of that concept, it was powerful for me because it helped me understand where there were some pretty substantial or significant personnel challenges in my building and why some teachers were incredible teachers, yet they were unhappy, yet they loved their kids. I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. And when I, when I learned about this concept, I read a short article on it. It was like something I'd never heard before. And it made so much sense. And it also made sense for me in what was making me feel the way I was feeling because I didn't feel psychologically or emotionally safe yeah. with people who are responsible for me. And that has been something I would encourage anybody who is responsible for anybody uh, who's listening to just Google it. You can Google it and read quick articles about it. They're very short. LinkedIn has a lot of articles, Harvard Business Review, Forbes. It's something that's becoming more and more talked about, I think. But the that making sure that your people are psychologically safe or you create an environment of psychological and emotional safety. So yes, teachers to students, 
but school leaders to their direct leadership team and then their direct leadership team to the teachers they may be coaching and evaluating and then district leadership to their principals or people that they're overseeing. I'd say that that's probably the thing that might make somebody decide, hey, this is not something that I'm going to stick with. I'm going to leave. Um, And I'm hearing that more and more. So, yeah. And just to add to that. So like, then we put, we pose this idea to your listeners and it's like, okay, I don't know what emotional and psychological safety is. What is that? Okay. They go read some articles. They start to learn about it for people who, who are triggered. And I say triggered, meaning they're already sort of in their fight or flight or freeze uh, state. Their body is triggered. Maybe they, I don't know, haven't experienced emotional and psychological safety before. So like those relearning that you are psychologically safe and emotionally safe takes some time. One of the Mm. things that leaders can do, which is really important, is that when, when someone is triggered, they really are very less able to think critically, to be solution focused. They're in protection mode. And it's very difficult to find collaborative solutions when a person is triggered. How we get through that is we first need to acknowledge and validate for a person to diffuse that trigger. So once we get people back to a sort of less emotionally charged place, if that's possible, this is again, another conversational relational skill set. But that's why earlier when I'm like, oh, I could sit here and easily validate and acknowledge what that situation must feel like. It's so understandable if you're in a situation where you think you're set up to fail, that you would be constantly feeling frustrated and overwhelmed. Totally understandable. If you feel like you don't have time to do things and and you're being held to these impossible standards, it makes complete sense that you would be afraid all the time or upset or on edge or however they might feel. That makes sense. I really can't imagine anyone in that situation feeling differently, right? So like to acknowledge that, to validate how and why that is normal and it makes sense that people are responding emotionally that way, that helps a person who is in leadership potentially to talk to someone who is their potentially subordinate. I'm not sure what the hierarchical views in education are like, but I imagine there is a hierarchical feeling, right? So there's power dynamics in between those things. And it's important for the people in higher level leadership roles to understand that they're simply being in a leadership role above their subordinates is fear inducing. There's power over, there's power over. Brene Brown talks a lot about this concept of power over comparatively to power from, or I forget how she says it, but it's worth looking up. And so anyway, I invite leaders who, you know, are leading their teams to look into what is the skill of acknowledgement and validation such that I can diffuse the fears of the people I'm leading such that we can actually then be in a collaborative solution focused discussion about what's happening. Thank you. Because that's actually a a how to, a how to get through that. And um, that is something that is pervasive in definitely in our, in our segment, in our field field. So actually we, um, we were kind of leading right into this next, it's almost like a scenario or just a description for any listeners who are not in the education field. A lot of them may not know this, but fear is a feeling that a lot of teachers in school and district leaders are feeling. And we've touched on this over the, the last few minutes and it's becoming a more prominent feeling. Um, obviously some of the drivers are the COVID pandemic, but most educators fear that they're going to do something wrong that will get them in trouble. So not cover enough material, cover the wrong material, make a decision in the best interest of the kids, but then get in trouble with the supervisor. What advice do you have for a teacher or a, a school leader who finds themselves paralyzed by fear? How can they cope with it so it doesn't prevent them from being their awesome selves in their roles? Yeah, that's a great question. I like I just said, I would validate and acknowledge and validate that being totally understandable, right? 
I would I would be curious about the culture of the leadership in their particular school. Right. So if there is a culture of people getting in trouble, of being reprimanded or disciplined or whatever that culture might be, I would validate like, OK, it's understandable. I would invite people to look more closely into what that disciplinary action looks like, what the impact like I would basically invite them into a contemplation around what's the worst that could happen. And it might be pretty bad. They might lose their job. It might be might be hardcore. So I'm not suggesting like, oh, it's not going to be that bad. It might be really, you know, really affect their lives. So I want people to look at that to be like, what of these things am I blowing out of proportion in my mind? Like, is it, oh, that really wouldn't be bad. Okay. It would kind of, it would kind of not be ideal. I would feel, I would feel bad for maybe a week and it, it would not be fun, but it wouldn't be a big deal. Like, so there's some scenarios that fall into that sort of level. And then there are other scenarios that are really a giant big deal. And I would basically invite people to look at those also. And that will help people discern what level of risk they want to take in terms of what they're doing in their classroom or whatever they're trying to cultivate and, and make happen in their roles. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but literally, it's literally perfect what you <laughs> just said. No, because if you think, <laughs> I don't want to lump all of us in education into one group, but if you think about it, I think a lot of us were the ones that wanted to follow every single rule when we were in school ourselves. Yep. So we're the ones who want, we want to, not that we want constant pats on the back or recognition, mm -hmm. but they're always afraid to do something wrong. So, and honestly, what the way you just framed it as ask yourself, what's the worst that can, what's the worst that's going to happen? And you're right. Sometimes the worst is you may lose your job. However, I do have to say that rare, rarely happens, very rarely happens. Mm -hmm. So, and that's across the board for teachers and for, for school leaders and administrators. So, well, and What's I want to I want to add more mm -hmm. to this, Michaela. It's important to, to yeah. talk about it that you t point to something that again we started to touch on it a little bit m more earlier. But the idea of this stuff is deep, right? Maybe in this is I am not a therapist, but I work in the therapeutic realm. I certainly invite people to get professional help around healing these deep, deep things of something like that is a great example where we might have gotten that from how our parents disciplined us as a child. And I'm not, again, not going, trying to go there and, you know, be the therapist of your audience. It's more just to say, this is totally normal. Like so many people feel that way, it, whether they're in the education space or not. But this idea of, I don't want to get in trouble because maybe our dad yelled at us or our mom what withdrew her love. Like there's so many different versions of how children can be sort of small T traumatized. It's not like some giant, like, cause that's the thing. There's big T trauma, little T trauma, but these little T traumas of, of how we're raised in the ways, and it's not to blame parents or blame our past. And this can happen in so many different ways. But when we look at that stuff, we can start to go, Oh, that's my inner child responding to this scenario. Is it, am I actually going to die? Is it going to be that emotionally painful that I can't as an adult really navigate the scenario? When we really look at that from a removed view, we can go, oh, okay, that's why it's so scary for me as an adult, even though logically, of course, I can get through this scenario. And to start looking at, I really invite people to get whatever professional therapeutic help they they can because it it just gives us so many more so much more freedom from those types of emotional responses it's like we theoretically are in our own emotional prisons when we let that stuff just rule our lives and consistently be how we react in tough situations when we do that work to look at that stuff and heal that stuff deeply we're able to engage in a work scenario where we are feeling set up to fail or we are working with someone who's tough to talk to and we'll just have a more grounded sense of calm. And so we'll show up differently. And most people show up so much more powerfully when they've done that work. I love it. 
Um, that is a great way for people to confront the fear, the, the, the constant fear, I should say, or the fear cycle. Yeah. The pattern. Yeah. The pattern fear, the patterned responses. Those are the things that that type of work is meant to illuminate for people. Exactly. So I guess the distinction I would make is if there is a, a fear that's paralyzing somebody in their role and they feel that they, they're not, either they don't recognize themselves or they're unable to perform any of their daily functions because of the fear, um, of course, getting professional help is the answer. The, the other side of that, I would say, is the the fear that circles in somebody's head as they're still performing all of their functions, but might make them just lose the joy or, or just not enjoy their role is something where we can use self-talk to say, what's the worst that can happen? Uh, If I, and and is, is that consequence, does that outweigh the benefit of me doing this and taking this risk? And because we know that when, when people feel um, safe to take risks in their roles, they are happier yeah. because they, they know that if they're not, if they know that they are supported and valued, taking risks is a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Because the payoff with kids and the payoff in what you're doing is, 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 is incredible. It's almost like a, a high that you get when you say, wow, that worked. And those, wow, that worked moments sometimes can feel really fleeting, especially currently in the, when you look at school, not looking or feeling like school. So I think that's a really great, uh, a really great distinction. And, um, you know, if we think about teachers, so this is a little bit, a little bit of a shift from being fear-based, but I mean, you do something that brings you so much joy and you talk about passion, you're skydiving, something that you know, even I, and, and I'll do anything somebody tells me to do or asks me to go any roller coaster. I, I'm waiting for my husband to tell me we're going skydiving and I'm going to have to do it. I know that. And I think I'll enjoy it. But I don't know that I would go sign up tomorrow just to, to skydive, just being completely Yeah, honest. totally and understandable. You, it's not for everyone. Get, yeah. But you, but I mean, but you talk, I mean, I can see it in your face and hear it in your voice when you talk about that passion that you have for it. And in all honesty, that's, I was really fortunate to have that feeling when I became a teacher, when I, my first year of teaching was by far my favorite, but I've had amazing years of teaching. And so the mission of my organization, which includes this podcast is to help on all fronts, teachers and people in, in leadership positions who are so important and so needed stay in their roles, not unwillingly, but find that joy and passion again. So when I read a recent article that noted that teachers are 20% more, so the statistic has always been about 30% 30 of teachers leave within the first few years of teaching, that statistic has jumped up to 54% uh, post-pandemic are considering leaving the profession within the next two years. Now, that doesn't mean they definitely will, but to even consider leaving means something's really wrong. Yeah, for sure. Because we're not, it's not just a job. I don't know. I have never met one teacher ever in any place I've been who ever went into teaching as just a job. It's like a calling and a passion. Yeah. Um, So to to, to read that and to know that it's up 20%, um, it was jarring to me. And then additionally to to go on to read that 84% of teachers report that teaching is more stressful now than it was prior to the pandemic. And I can tell you that teaching was really stressful then too. What's most painful is that it indicates that teachers just aren't happy Mm -hmm. and they're likely to stay unhappy because they're so committed to their students. If we agree that joyful teachers who embrace, um, you know, hilarity and love, are even better for our students. How can we, how can teachers get their joy back? How, what agency do they have to try to create that joy and get those feelings back? Maybe not completely because we're in the pandemic, but at least the point where they're not saying, I want to leave. Yeah, that's such a good question. And (laughs) and the the short answer, of course, is I have no idea. You know what I mean? Because everyone's (laughs) path is so unique and special to themselves and they're unique Mm -hmm. as to what, what lights them up, what brings them joy. That's so unique to each person. Like I have deep passion for my life coaching work you know, in my writing, like I, I torture myself as a writer because I just feel a calling to, you know, share courageously with the world as, as contribution. But 
to answer your question, I, I would say to invite people to really learn how to let go of the things they cannot control and to shift and to practice the mental skill of focusing only on the things they can control and really rigorously learning how to emotionally detach from outcomes, which that, that language can also be like, wait, wait, what? I, I care, right? So this the idea of attachment to outcomes is charged because we care. It's a good thing, right? This So it doesn't mean that we're not wildly advocating for the kids, that we're not showing up in the room and and you know what I mean, being as as best we can for the kids in the in the realm of being a teacher. And this is me just guessing again, please correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm saying anything that doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. Why I bring this up is that the systemic structure and the systemic rules, the trigger around that of like, I don't want to get in trouble or I'm set up to fail with all the things we've been touching on today. Those things are out of our control. Yeah. They're just out of your, they're yeah. just entirely out of your control. Yeah. What is in our control is what we say in a conversation, how we show up in the room, what we do in the morning to set ourselves in an emotionally strong, positive place for the kids. It's, it's really almost, and this is sort of kind of like skydiving in a way is that people are like, Oh, you must be fearless. I'm like, Oh my God, no. The reason <laughs> I think I was so called to skydiving is because I was such an anxiety filled young, young girl. I had so oh. much fear that if I didn't find a way to work with that, to, to transform it, to work for me, I wouldn't have done anything with my life. I would have been, I would have been very small and safe in my choices because I was too afraid. And so that's this idea of it, none of this stuff is a quick fix. It's more something we can start to practice. Some days we'll be good at it. Other days we won't. And, and the emotions that we feel and all of that stuff that comes up, just continue to validate ourselves, to learn how to validate, hey, it's totally normal and understandable that I'd feel this way in this scenario. Like, this is tough. Okay, what can I control? What's something that I feel good about controlling and, and bringing now to my next moment and to the next hour of my life or whatever like that? So those are places to start when you're dealing with something that has been a blanket of negativity and challenge for a long time, it can feel really difficult to shift to a joyful place when we're that blanketed with, with feelings of, of suppression and stuff like that. And so I would invite people to slowly grow into that and then look really much, look really for those moments of joy and go, what, why did I feel that way then? And, and then you can start to magnify those things also. Great. Thank you so much. Um, that I think is, you know, increasingly, uh, a theme that will at least start our school year. So, um, giving me, so thank you for that and teachers <laughs> and, and, and everybody else, uh, a framework to think through it as far as I can't control if there's a national pandemic. I can't control that we have to wear a mask. I can't control that these things are happening, but what I can control is and then additionally to say, hey, I just felt happy. I felt joy. What, what brought me that? Or later on thinking about something that made me happy or joyful in the day, identify what that was and then think about how can I intentionally put that in my day tomorrow and the next day? And can I make that consistent so that I'm not expecting myself to feel joyful in a time of when it's hard to, but I can try to actively put those things in my day. I Absolutely. Think it's yeah. Intention um, is big. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked a lot about skydiving and I really want to kind of turn the, the rest over to you um, and, and, and blend these next two. So one is really just about you and what the lessons that skydiving has taught you. We can end on that one if you'd like, because the, the other question I have is about, you talk a lot about goal setting. And when, if I use the word goal, what's your goal yeah. to a teacher or a principal or an assistant principal or somebody in a district level position right now, that word 
is like the blanket, oh, blanket over you. Yeah. Um, because those goals that we, I guess, set, um, become something a that's mandated. So it's a man, it's mandatory to set a goal. Then it becomes mandatory to set a certain type of goal. Then it becomes mandatory to set the goal and, and the target to get to becomes, it can't be less than this. It has to be. So now something that can be so powerful for us becomes something that is a, again, feels unattainable and B is just a word that everybody dreads. Yeah. what, what is, um, how do you recommend people set goals? And how do we, and I don't know if you have the answer for how to sh- shake that stigma yeah. of goal setting for us right now in education, but what are your thoughts on well, that? Well, and I don't know if this is necessarily possible in the education space, but theoretically anything's possible. I mean, if we think about it, <laughs> yes. but, um, yep. yeah, when I think about goal setting, I like, it connects to the original in, insight from skydiving for me, but I, I, I like to, and I, I encourage people to follow their curiosities in the sense that things that we're forced to do, of course, they're, they're not going to have the same aliveness, the same electricity that a goal that we're like interested in and excited about, or even just curious about there's, there's an, a life connected to those kinds of goals. So I would invite people to think about not what they're mandated to do, but something that they like the idea of doing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like maybe it's, I don't know, X number of students do X thing, but it's like this thing that no one would ever, ever even mandate you to do. You know, it's something new and different. And there's something that you're cultivating from nothing from that. I, I, when I first jumped out of an airplane, I was that same person. We talk about limiting beliefs that was like, there's no way I can do this, right? People say Mm -hmm. that all the time. I can never jump out of a perfectly good airplane. What I can test is on the end of that phrase, what's missing is that I could never Mm -hmm. jump out of a perfectly good airplane and live, you know, like there's this genuine, honest, totally appropriate fear of mortality when you're jumping out of an airplane. But when we look at fear evolutionarily, it is connected to death, but all of it is connected to death. Where like, if we are, you know, we get in trouble and we're ousted from the the group or whatever, then we're away from the hunter-gatherer tribe and we're going to die because we're all alone, right? Whatever. There's lots of different reasons why we feel that. But when I first jumped and I landed and I was not dead, (laughs) this is like kind of funny to even (laughs) think about it, right? And I was 18 when this happened. It it really fundamentally altered my psyche in the sense that I got very experientially, and this is another thing for people to consider, is that it's not just thinking differently to feel differently. It's that sometimes we have to do things to earn evidence that helps change our mind. And so when I landed and I wasn't dead, I was like, holy crap, not hashtag life coach, you can do anything. (laughs) It's no, it's more that when fear is trying to stop me or when a limiting belief or I'm telling myself I can't do something, I have to at least question whether that's true or not. So this idea of just being willing to do more than we think we can, that has supported me in my success as a professional skydiver, as a writer, as an entrepreneur, as a friend, as every area of my life that I care about. The willingness to go beyond what we think we can't do, it opens up so many doors that are just in the realm of the unknown. And so that's something I would invite, you know, all of your listeners to consider also is like, You think you can go this far, but really in truth, we are all so much more capable than we ever currently think we are. And so that's the idea of, of, you know, thinking bigger and also taking bigger action, but in a way that feels manageable and doable to us at the time and in our current circumstances. Yeah. So one thing I always, uh, I talked to teachers about and I always did was, okay, so we're going to set this goal and maybe there has been a target that's been set for you, like a minimum target that you, you can't set a target less than this. So, okay. If that's the target, what's your favorite thing to do with students all year or what, what's the skill or what, what are you going to be focusing 
repeatedly on because that might be different for different teachers. Like it's going to be different for me than it is for somebody else. Cause we have diff- we, while we are all teaching something we're supposed to teach, we all bring a different flavor. So, okay. So if you need to hit that target, how, what do you, what's something you love to do? What's a, a way of assessing students that you love to assess them? You're going to do it all the time so that you're not just setting a target and you're going to measure it once. And you're like, Oh, I hope I hit it. Like, I hope I land. Yeah. Um, you know, I hope, I hope I survive. No, <laughs> try it a bunch of times. Like what's something you love to do and tie that into the goal because then you'll actually maybe enjoy trying to reach that goal yeah. and seeing if you can get to that target. Yeah. And recognizing the iterative process and everything. Certainly I wasn't capable of being a professional skydiver when I first jumped, you know, I had right. to iterate. I certainly, I wrote a column, monthly column for 11 years and that became my book in my audible book. You know what I mean? That iterative process over time, it's, that's an actually interesting thing about my writing in that my, my most latest publication is that you can really see the trajectory over time of me as a writer, a person, a professional, and it's clear that the iterative <laughs> process is so, so important because you, we all start not really doing stuff very well. And it's only through kind of practice and experience that we learn and grow over time. So I, Malik, I could talk to you for, you know, the next three hours and <laughs> you've given, you've just, you've given honestly me and then our listeners so many I mean, it's been, you know, 30,000 foot view of like, let's really take a look at this from a 30,000 foot view, but also like, here are three things that you could do tomorrow when you feel this way. And I'm deeply appreciative to you for that, because these are the types of things that I hope can impact teachers and, and leaders in education in a way where they can take a little bit of control and do some of the things for themselves to help themselves through some things that seem impossible. So I'm really grateful to you for that. I want to ask you because we could, I think that you just have a million gems for everybody listening. Where can they get more Mel? Where can they they get more of you? Where can they look you up? Where can they purchase your book? Yeah. um, yeah, And and find you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. My website is melaniecurtis.com. Uh, my book that I was just talking about is How to Fly Life Lessons from a Professional Skydiver. It actually just published on Audible, and that's a really, really great way to consume that particular work. Uh, it's a lot of storytelling. But yeah, yes. my podcast is TrustTheJourney.today, um, and those are those are all great places. My socials are MelanieCurtis11 on Instagram and Facebook as well. Great. I'm going to put those all into the episode notes as well so that anybody who's listening, if they're driving in their car, like I usually am, I can't then look it up. So I will put that in the episode notes. So for anybody listening, they can find you in all those ways um, just by clicking on the notes and then looking, clicking your link and and finding you that way. Thank you so so much for having me, Michaela. Thank you so much. Well, everyone, don't you just feel refreshed after hearing from Mel? I know I did after talking with her. One thing I want to highlight one more time is her strategy of emotionally detaching ourselves from the results of goals we set or work that we do, meaning outcomes do not prove who we are as people. Now, that's hard to do when we work in such a people-centered field, and this is something that I know I need to continue to work on. But remember, you are enough. You're enough for your colleagues, for your supervisor, and for your students. If you have anything you'd like dissected, reach me at www.dissectedpodcastmkj.com. Thanks for listening.